0: From my experience in reading this book and previous you know, SPH Reads books is that public health is personal. Right? There's there's something in us that propels us.
1: Welcome back to PH Pod for the second episode of season three. I'm Connor McCombs.
2: And I'm Bethany Hollenborg. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Today, we're here to talk about this year's pick for the Boston University SPH Reads. It is The Fortune Men by Nadifa Mohammed, a book about the last man in Cardiff, Wales, to be sentenced to death.
2: We're joined today by Dean Yvette Kozier, who picked The Fortune Men as the book to read this year. Thank you so
0: much for joining us, Dean Kozier.
1: Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself?
0: Sure. I'm Yvette Kozier. I'm an associate professor of epidemiology at BU School of Public Health and i serve as the associate dean of diversity equity inclusion and justice awesome amazing so we're
2: here to talk about the fortune men and for anybody who hasn't read the book yet could you give us maybe a short Mm -hmm. brief elevator pitch of why first they should be reading it Mm -hmm. and a bit about what it is
0: sure well the book uh tells the story of mahmoud matan who was Sadly, and I guess yeah, you know, it, it goes both ways, he, he was the last man to be hanged in Britain, and sadly it was for a crime he did not commit. He was an, a, a Somali immigrant to Wales, and it really tells the story of not just his journey, but about the people around him and the lives sort of left behind.
2: And why was this story chosen for SPH Reads this year?
0: It touches on so many things that are pertinent today. This uh, this was a true story, so it's a fictionalized account of a true story that took place 70 years ago. But if you read it, even just lightly, it does not. It could apply today in every single aspect, from community he lived in, the multiracial immigrant strong community in in Wales to policing practices, to the criminal legal system, to, you know, you can just go down the line and even to his fate. So,
1: yeah, it's really interesting to read about the story because I mean, it takes place before the term multiracial even really exists. But Cardiff Bay is historically a very multiracial, multiethnic center kind of in Wales's history, yes. and I know in our conversations while we were setting up and scheduling mm-hmm. for this podcast, you kind of mentioned that this was a very personal story for you. Do you mm-hmm. feel comfortable talking about
0: why? Oh, sure, sure. Well, it starts with the title, The Fortune Men. I was very interested in what that was about, and the author bases this on a description of those immigrants who come to a, a new world earn money and send back to their countries. These are often men and what they provide their families in their original countries is, you know, a level of relief. They they send these remittances back, so that's what makes them the fortune men. It made me think of my uncle who to me was the original fortune man. He left Barbados, my father's birthplace. Before I was born, he was a merchant seaman, much like the character uh, in this book. And he <laughs> went to Cardiff, Wales, where he married an English woman and spent the rest of his life.
2: Wow. Yes. Very oh, similar. Very similar story. Very, similar story.
0: Okay. Very, very similar story all of his existence and living in Cardiff, he always sent remittances back to family in Barbados up until like the day he died, he, he sent money back. This was a, it, it was interesting to get an idea of the life and the community that he lived in like, again, I only spoke with him on the phone a couple of times in my life, but this was really kind of like the story of my uncle Mac, except for you know the unfortunate criminal aspects. I
1: can't even imagine mm-hmm. reading a story and seeing so clearly someone in my own family essentially, but mm-hmm. not someone in my own family.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it also let me see that me growing up in the US, him living in the UK, that our lives and our social experiences were not that different in how um, mercurial the criminal legal system could be.
2: That's it, you bring up a great point Mm -hmm. about, so this book is written And set in Wales, and it's 1952, Mm -hmm. which is 70 years ago, and an entire ocean away, Mm -hmm. in a place when, at a time, it was much harder to travel as globally as we do now.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing, like, obviously we know there are still (laughs) a lot of racial tensions happening Mm -hmm. here in the US, so why is this the story that matters to us here today what is this telling us or kind of highlighting for us
0: it's that um for one we, we like to look at other places and say they have it worth you know they, they don't get it we do and it's clear that they don't get it and we don't get it right this is a story about human interaction human nature clearly there are lots of things that when people of different backgrounds get together it can be both harmonious but it can also be fraught. And you get this sense from reading the book of both of those things. There was there was harmony, people, you know, got along as humans do. They also when when things were not going well, usually for the, the majority economy then they start to crack down and they start to restrict things and there, there's a lot more of that tension. So the the story of immigration is the same. It remains.
2: So you here at SPH mm-hmm. are the Dean of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice. Mm-hmm. And you're an epidemiologist and an investigator for the Black Women's Health Study. Mm-hmm. Reading a story like this that's racially charged and focuses on the themes of justice in particular. Mm-hmm. and miscarriage of justice what really caught your attention about this book Mm -hmm. what resonated with you when we're thinking about our justice system when we're thinking Mm -hmm. about being in public health and doing the work that you do
1: yeah because of course Mm -hmm. that's something that also comes with being a person of color in this country Mm -hmm. and immigration is how does the justice system approach those people
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, immigration aside, thinking about how the these cases mirror so tightly, cases that have happened just here in Boston, what immediately came to mind were the Innocence Project that is uh, you know in the United States, but yeah. then um, more locally, the Exoneree Program that involves uh, Sean Drumgold, who recently passed away, and Sean Ellis who were both Bostonians, who at uh, about maybe 10 or so years apart, were each accused and convicted uh, and imprisoned for crimes that they ultimately were shown not to have committed. And so in the case of uh, the Fortune Men, there was ignoring clear evidence where people were saying no that's not the man, or no, we did not see him. We saw, you know, and but still kind of going down with a a case, um, nevertheless, the result was not decades in prison. it was here it was death, and what the more recent examples show is that it could still happen, so again, we talk about the seventy year difference these these mistakes, these omissions, these intended setups whatever do happen
2: absolutely Mm -hmm. they do and the idea that the justice system we have today Mm -hmm. could still be in a place to ignore or Mm -hmm. get their eyes set on one person and assume they committed the crime so much that Mm -hmm. the judicial process doesn't matter
0: anymore yeah yeah and more recently with things like George Floyd what you see is before you even get into the judicial system there is a kind of a pre-system of this is the person this is the guilty person and there's almost this tunnel vision to either constrain incarcerate or or kill i would i would hope that if i were a district attorney and new evidence came to light that it would not be a personal affront to me right
2: absolutely
0: to bring I this forward we would we would hope right
1: <laughs> we would hope that yeah everyone in this room is of a high enough moral fiber to
0: say okay new information so um so that that's that's part of what again rang through in this story when when things didn't line up when things weren't clear why couldn't the justice system back up was it because they had someone who was imperfect so therefore, you know, maybe we're doing the good. I, I don't understand. I don't know.
1: Um, and of course, those are just kind mm-hmm. of like the direct consequences for the individuals that are getting pointed to. Yes. It mm-hmm. doesn't even begin to. I mean, you used the phrase earlier of collateral. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even begin to get into the collateral damage that this effect can have. This, mm-hmm. I know this book in particular touches on the main character being he has a family.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm
1: there's obviously this theme of, like, what's left behind Mm -hmm. after.
0: Yeah. As a social epidemiologist, this is something that has always intrigued me. I'm very interested in how neighborhoods shape health. One of the the things that has happened in America's war on drugs is by incarceration being the only avenue that we've really been willing to try, it results in lots of people being put into prison for very long times, and it reshapes an entire neighborhood. You're removing mostly men from the community in the years where they could be prime breadwinners for the families that they have. And you know, when we look at neighborhoods that are sort of high functioning and those that are much more disordered, there's often this pattern that we see, and we can really trace it back to some of our very broad policies on, on thinking that, Punishment, not rehabilitation, punishment, and we have to be really clear that that is totally where our criminal uh, legal system has focused, is resulted in individuals not uh, being present. What happens when those individuals re emerge? We have stripped so many of the social network. There, that their reemergence leaves very little for them to be able to contribute. We lock them out of so many jobs. They're convicted of a federal crime. They can't take out federal loans to, you know, continue their education. Actually, they are not even supposed to be in public housing.
2: Really? Yes,
0: oh. yes. So if that's where your family ended up from your absence, right because that's what they could afford they can't even come home to their family and so we, you know we set up all of these things without really thinking through what the, the downstream consequences are you know that's that's a huge part of the um, collateral damage but also the costs
2: it's expensive it's
0: expensive what does it cost to keep someone incarcerated for a decade or mul- multiple decades versus what it might cost to educate a child in a public sy- public school system.
2: Mm-hmm. To provide mental health support mm-hmm. to um, either a school or a workplace or so something. To provide
1: low-income housing and to food provide. kitchens.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as a society, when these decisions are made, the collateral damages all of us. Oh. With
1: mm-hmm. someone like George Floyd, someone like Matan and The mm-hmm. Fortune Men, they kind of become a scapegoat they're someone that's yeah. easy to point fingers at
0: it's that point of imperfect imperfect people, people yeah. yes exactly you know which is why
1: i think it's really important mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. in the fortune and *Maton* mm-hmm. is shown to not be mm-hmm. the the model minority trope he should the mm-hmm. flaws are shown and he is still deserving of the proper justice
0: exactly so um,
2: then mm-hmm. looking at these systems that we have Mm -hmm. and having an amazing public health expert in front of us (laughs) um, how do we undo some of this a little bit how do we is there Mm -hmm. any steps you think that could be ones to take now
0: Um, so uh, my students one thing that they should be able to say that I always say is vote (laughs) 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 and not just um, every four years voting is an annual thing. There's something for election where you are every single year, uh, from dog catcher to president. You must vote because all of those things tie into these systems that we end up with.
1: So mm-hmm. voting for things that you don't even necessarily know that you are supposed, supposed to, to be vote voting on. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And
1: I. Love voting. Mm-hmm. I always thought pretty... I love voting. <laughs> you're the proud wearing the I voted sticker for like yep. a week. I love that. <laughs> that's like right. Week. The week.
2: I, I once went and mm-hmm. voted, and they didn't give me a sticker, and I got upset. Please, <laughs> <and like>, sticker. <laughs> what do you mean you're out of stickers? <laughs> but I grew up in Louisiana, and we don't get any voting materials. And I would stand out there. And reading it all, and I was like, half these words I don't know. And I was like, but I think I'm getting the gist. You know, I was I was a mm-hmm. senior in high school the first time I could vote, and I was, like, standing outside my elementary school. <laughs> and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I know what I'm going to do. Well, it seems right, feels right. Yeah. And went in, and, and that's how I went about it. Wow. But not nearly as informed as I should be, as anybody should be, when we're the ones that our vote makes that change. Yeah.
1: It can okay. almost be intimidating. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of people who don't vote because they say my vote doesn't matter, and that, of course, it is. is unfortunate. And I feel like that and, is a and issue untrue from <laughs> what Bethany's <laughs> talking about <laughs> with this lack of understanding of how things <laughs> function in the current system.
0: And it, it can be intimidating. And I think it's partly it's meant to be intimidating. My philosophy is. If they want to keep me from voting, I'm going to make them work. Yeah. Right? I'm
1: going to make them. Really <laughs> I'm going to make try. them
0: really, really try. And you, you know? know what? They will. And they will. <laughs> and they, they will, will try. <laughs> and they will try. You know. So I show up for every election. I don't. Again, it doesn't matter how minor it might be. And part of that for me was because um, there was a time in my youth when I didn't think my vote counted. And when I complained, those said, well, did you vote? And I was like, well, no. <laughs> right? And then they were like, well, why are you wasting my time? I can't do anything for you. And oh, no. that that was like a, a slap you know, in the head to me. And I also then recognized the number of people who should have been allowed to vote and couldn't vote their entire lives, right? So it, it was a, a reset for me. And, of course, we're talking about
1: making changes to the system. Mm-hmm. So beyond voting, what can like the average person mm-hmm. do in the face of a system that seems to be built against people like mm-hmm. Matan or George Floyd based off of immigration status, based off of skin color?
0: Yeah. You know, funding the um, public defender system. In the book, there wasn't a public defender system, but it was the community around Matan who were Pooling their money. So remember, we're saying that they're supporting themselves in Tiger Bay, they're sending remittances home, and now they're pooling their money to try to hire a lawyer to represent him. And the lawyer, the best lawyer that they could get, still referred to him as a savage. In their deliberations and sending the, the case to the jury, and that's that, the
2: lawyer who represented. And they were paying,
0: yeah, oh, yes, that was the defense lawyer that, that these that this community was paying. So when we look back at our public defender system, which is supposed to be one of those rights that we have in this country. This is grossly underfunded. Um, in some jurisdictions, it is so underfunded, and they have so few public defenders. It means people who are arrested languish in jail because they don't have the, the kind of the bullpen of defenders to actually even look through their files, and they have to wait just to get you in front of a judge. So those budgets come out of state houses and out of local municipalities. So this is all important
2: absolutely unfair
0: system yeah it's it's highly flawed highly flawed it it could use some uh some Some rehab yeah some tweaking i think so i think so
1: and of course this is looking forward on how we change Mm -hmm. the system to try and rectify the mistakes that have already been made but Mm -hmm. looking back what do we do about the damage that's already been done
0: yeah and back to the the book, Matan had three sons and a wife that um, he left and spent the rest of her life proclaiming his innocence and getting finally getting it his uh conviction overturned forty seven years later. Wow. They were able to remove his body from the pauper's grave within the prison and bring it to a cemetery with a a proper headstone inscribed killed by injustice. But she, I think she died maybe 10 years after that happened but they, they did also get a settlement, you know, a couple million dollars. However, she did not tell her sons that her that their father was hanged for murder I, I forget what story she gave them so they were going through as young kids thinking that their father had died and it was some kid in school of course
2: always a kid in always school. a
0: kid in school that you know blindsides one of her sons and says your father was a murderer and matan himself and talking to his friend says you know when you tell my mother i died tell her i died at sea that the stigma again and this the the disappointment and know because knowing what that will do to that person
1: and wanting to spare his family from that yeah
0: more pain for more
2: pain yeah stress takes Mm -hmm. years off your life stress in all of those ways the weight of stigma Mm -hmm. and dealing with the repercussions that that system created for Mm -hmm. you but the fact that um matan's wife had to fight for almost 50 years mm-hmm. just having to live to in live that.
0: in that yes for
2: 50 years mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. back to the idea of uh the damage and not just the families left behind very little is written about the victim in the crime she was a, a jewish woman an immigrant i think her parents had escaped the holocaust but as a as a victim most of the papers had her being very one-dimensional, you know, because she was still an other, yeah. right? Um, she was a Jewish immigrant. She was a Jewish in immigrant. 1952. I mean, talk about
1: a persecuted minority group for like all of history. All of
0: history, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it makes you wonder, like, did that have anything to do with the haste at which the case was put together, finding somebody based on very faulty evidence? But whenever there's these wrongful convictions, what happens to the family that has gone through the loss today 70 years later her her murder is an unsolved mystery
2: that's such a dual injustice Mm. and any of the comfort that the family got immediately dissipates and there's so little chance of it
0: changing yeah so that that it's bringing more situations than we're solving right (laughs) kind of going in the wrong direction but but what's the cost What is the cost? It's
1: it's horrible, but hopefully getting better. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully.
0: Yeah, if we can get the exoneree project into like the pre-exoneree project, right? Get it there, right? You know, that would be really good, right? (laughs) Just (laughs)
2: keep stepping it a little bit more forward, a little bit more forward, more
0: preventive, right? (laughs) As we public health people, as we public health people are, (laughs) right? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. we do have one last question
2: sure. that we ask all our guests. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called a short sentence. Mm-hmm. So,
1: In public health writing, we mm-hmm. do our best to say a lot mm-hmm. by saying a little. Okay. So mm-hmm. that it's easily understood and mm-hmm. easily memorable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Something to leave the audience with. Something to that they could take with them and remember what we talked about here. Mm-hmm. Do you have a short sentence for us?
0: Well, hmm. I might have a couple of short <laughs> sentences. One from my experience in reading this book and even previous you know, SPH Reads books is that public health is personal, right? There's, there's something in us that propels us into this field and it is personal. And we should not ignore the personal. I think that would be the the addendum. So the, the public health <laughs> is personal, semicolon. <laughs> and should that be ignored, right? Or something like that, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Join us for the SPH Reads Public Health Conversation September 9th via Zoom.
1: Author of the novel, Madifa Muhammad, will be joining Dean Kozier to provide insights and answer questions from the audience.
2: The forum is open to all and you can sign up on the BUSPH website.
1: PHPod is brought to you by the Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation in health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the health of the population. Join the conversation by following us on your favorite social media. You can also subscribe to the PHP Friday Roundup to see our stories of the week delivered directly to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org. Thanks for listening.